0: This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC.
1: The Little Mermaid is Disney's latest property to receive the remake treatment. The animated classic is now a CGI-filled live-action spectacle.
2: We've got a life-like Sebastian, a few new songs by Alan Menken and Lin-Manuel Miranda, Halle Bailey as The Little Mermaid, and Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. I'm Aisha Harris.
1: And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we are talking about The Little Mermaid on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining us today is NPR's Consider This and All Things Considered producer Mark Rivers. Hey, Mark. Hey, guys. Good to be here. It's great to have you. So... The original Little Mermaid from 1989 kicked off Disney's hugely lucrative renaissance, so it was always bound to get the remake treatment. Halle Bailey, who's half of the singing duo Chloe and Halle, plays the live-action Ariel, here she is singing Part of Your World. Live-action Prince Eric is played by Jonah Hauer King, Sebastian is now a very lifelike animated crab, voiced by David Diggs, Flounder is a lifelike animated fish, voiced by Jacob Tremblay, and Scuttle is a lifelike animated bird, voiced by Aquafina. And two characters are blends of live-action and animation. Villainous Ursula is played by Melissa McCarthy, while King Triton is played by Javier Bardem. While some scenes match the original film practically frame for frame, there are significant changes. For starters, the song Les Poissons was cut, and Alan Menken and Lynn manuel Miranda wrote several new songs for this film, including a rap for Scuttle and Sebastian called The Scuttlebutt. We will get to The uh. Scuttlebutt. The <laughs> New Little Mermaid was directed by Rob Marshall, who made Chicago and Into the Woods. It's in theaters now. Mark, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of this iteration of The Little Mermaid? So,
3: I had not seen the original Little Mermaid when I saw the new one. Whoa. Wait, what? Really? So, I hadn't seen the original until after I saw the new one.
1: Interesting.
3: <laughs> and it really says something that, like, even having not seen the original, that I could tell from shots and scenes that this was some kind of Xerox, some copy of the original thing. I was not enveloped. Everything just kind of just sat there on the screen. You know, Halle Bailey, she was good, But she was constricted by the character itself. This is not one of Disney's best protagonists. Uh, She's kind of this whiny, naive girl who wants to leave behind her friends and family for this bland white guy who she does not even know. Just, like, (laughs) startling. And I think the main showcase for this movie, obviously, is Bailey's singing voice. And she can sing. But for a significant portion of this movie, she's mute. So there's nowhere, really, for her performance to go except she is just kind of wide-eyed the entire time. Looking back at the original, it's so bright, it's so colorful, and this one's just flat. And it gets to a point where it's just, why are we doing this beyond just leeching off the every modicum, every molecule of nostalgia that we have on Disney? Why does this movie exist? And, and, I, and I know it exists, it's just for profit. I just felt no personality behind this. But just this kind of level of just, it'll do, it's just... It's bleak. It's it's really bleak to me.
1: Wow. <laughs> a rousing <laughs> endorsement. Coming in hot. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, man. Call him like you see him. Aisha, I know you loved this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what would I give if I could live without these remakes? What would I pay to spend a day without deja vu? Oh, God. Okay. So, unlike Mark, I grew up with this movie. I loved the original movie. I can quote it by heart. I could probably reenact the entire film for you right now. I will not do that, but, you know. I'd rather see that than see this again. (laughs) You sounded pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't (laughs) too bad. Let's do it. Well, so I'm coming from it from a different perspective, and I really, really wanted to see at the very least, some really strong performances that could kind of rise above all of the, you know, the mess that is the really not great CGI. It suffers from the same issue that the Lion King remake did, mm-hmm. which is that, like, they went for photorealism. But then part of what makes the traditionally hand-drawn animated versions so great is the fact that these are expressive characters. They, you know, Sebastian, yeah, he's a crab in the original, but also his eyes are, like huge and they are like very expressive and he's like rubbery like he can move in all these different ways. Same thing with flounder. And here it's just like Sebastian is reduced to like two little bug eyes. You can barely see them. On top of that, David Diggs is for whatever reason doing a faux Caribbean accent just like Samuel E. Wright did in the original film. Which you know Samuel E. Wright was great, perfect in that film. But again, we're watching sort of this weird carbon copy Mm -hmm. and It was really, really disappointing. And I realized that they're, you know, casting a Black woman as Ariel is supposed to be this like moment for representation. And obviously, the people on the wrong side of history were all up in arms about this. And then we also had that moment there were, you know, Black people sharing their kids being like, oh, look, mommy, it's me. And I'm like, you know, I would have loved to have a Black princess when I was that age, but I also would love to have a Black princess that is an original princess. Mm -hmm. Like, this is why Mm -hmm. Tiana, to me, from Princess of the Frog, Mm -hmm. is special in a way that, as much as I love Halle Bailey, she's like a great presence. I also think that there's only so much she can do here and she's not like latching into the sort of like feistiness and the mischievousness of the character that was in the original role. So I got to agree with Mark. I'm sorry. People are going to be angry at us. I wanted better.
1: (laughs) I mean, I guess I'm coming in as the strongest, I guess, defender of this movie. I do think this is the strongest of the Disney remakes. That is not Admittedly, a terribly high bar. Okay, so I tried to go into this film with a little bit of a different mindset because having seen so many of these remakes and kind of come out of them with the same question that Mark asked up top, the why Why does this exist – I didn't want to sit there for two hours and 15 minutes with my arms folded the way I kind of found myself doing, like Mm -hmm. kind of expecting not to like it. And instead, I really tried to go into it with a mindset of like, this is a different kind of adaptation. This is the equivalent of trying to adapt The Little Mermaid for the theater. I'm trying to think of these as like some new form of adaptation instead of just thinking of them as cash grabs and trying to kind of appreciate it on its own terms in that way. I still don't think it's hugely successful. I think there are some pretty significant uncanny valley issues in a lot of the undersea stuff that just seemed kind of...
3: There are scenes there where I'm just like, I could be watching Blue Planet right now and have a a much better time.
1: (laughs) But without that kind of transcendent nature documentary quality of some of the CGI and something like Avatar, Mm -hmm. it just feels kind of mid-animation. I think once this film gets on land and becomes kind of that more conventional love story, there's a certain sweetness to it. There's a certain chemistry to it. Like, this is a good kind of mid-afternoon streaming kind of movie. There were qualities to this that I did enjoy. I did enjoy how much of a meal Melissa McCarthy makes of Ursula, which if you're not making a meal of Ursula, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I thought Halle Bailey did a, did actually a really nice job in this. I do agree that she's bound by some of the limitations of this character, but I thought she did some really nice acting with her face. I think she did some nice physical acting with kind of the wobbliness of getting accustomed to having legs. I found myself... Kind of drawn to her performance and really enjoyed it. And I thought they did some nice things when she is unable to speak. They were still kind of doing almost voiceover singing with her to take That's advantage true. of the quality yeah. of her voice. I didn't sit there with my arms folded. I didn't hate it. I did have the reaction to, like, why am I watching a realistic crab <laughs> <laughs> at all? Um, I didn't have the reaction to it that I had to something like Aladdin where I was really frustrated. I think it's that kind of like mid-level reaction that kind of like,
3: yeah, sure, fine. That is just – that is kind of so kind of appalling to me that it just – it's like it's pleasant. We have this lovely presence at the center of it and it's very watchable. But – I think about one scene that I were kind of like set up a little bit. And it was kind of the first scene of these magnificent crashing waves. And there was such an immensity to it, a mystery to it. I think some of the things they tried to develop in the movie a little bit, I use the term develop very loosely, is this kind of divide between the humans and the kind of sea world. And I think one thing they tried to develop more is that the humans are very fearful and wary of of the sea. And, you know, it made me think about, you know, those old maps with the sea creatures drawn at the margins, this idea of, you know, to represent these unknown parts of the world that we just, we have not yet discovered. I wanted some of that, you know. I wanted this great clashing between these two worlds to carry some kind of weight, you know, some kind of like sense of wonder. It just really fell flat. They didn't really develop it when they go on land. You know, they're supposed to be in the Caribbean and it's very, you know, multicultural, almost utopian. But it didn't feel like the Caribbean. It felt like Caribbean at a Disney resort. Oh you know, it my just, god! It just, yes. it just didn't feel. It just didn't feel lived in. And when the secret just finally do kind of announce themselves to the humans, it's just kind of like oh. Wow. Sea creatures. There's no there's no (laughs) sense that their entire world has been rocked by the presence of Ursula or or, or mermaids. It's just kind of like, yep.
2: okay, cool. Yeah. I love that you pointed that out because I felt the same way where and, and this is, again, my the other issues that I've had with a lot of these remakes is that they're ostensibly trying to take these like 70, 80 minute properties and expand them on the surface as being more progressive, more enlightened. So Mm -hmm. not just this like multicultural version of the Caribbean that I'm not sure has ever existed except outside of Disneyland, (laughs) but also this idea that there's also an ecological bent to it where the people Mm -hmm. are really pissed off at the humans for getting into shipwrecks and then all of their debris is in the water. And, And it's like, I get it. I get what you're trying to prove here. But then at the same time, it's to what end? And they never go quite far enough. And they're still focused on recreating these moments for the audience members, for the people who are my age, who grew up watching these movies, like induce this sort of like sense of nostalgia and deja vu that I think is just kind of at the end of the day, it just feels really cynical and really half baked yes yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah. even the songs that have been added by lin-manuel miranda Should we just get the scuttlebutt right now let's, we gotta have just, the scuttlebutt talk now <laughs> let's hear about that scuttlebutt
1: hey wake up wake up wake up what hey
3: have you not heard that scuttlebutt Your butt. no the gossip the buzz the who said what who does that yeah the scuttlebutt well i was flying over land and sea.
1: Boy, you were watching The Little Mermaid and then Hamilton broke out?
3: <laughs> that was the only time I viscerally reacted to what was happening on screen. And it was not a good visceral reaction. Yeah. Hamilton is a distinctive achievement. I think Lin-Manuel makes music for like those movie inner-city teachers who say that Shakespeare was the OG MC. <laughs> and that's fine. I know there's an audience for that. I am not a part of that audience. Oof, yeah, that was that was hard to get through.
2: The other thing is, like, we already kind of have the more modern version of The Little Mermaid, which Lin-Manuel Miranda also had a hand in, which was Moana. Which has great songs. Great songs. Like, I love Moana. And to me, it's like they're just constantly chasing their own fins, tail, whatever you know metaphor we want to use for Disney. I mean, fish do have tails. <laughs> <laughs> so the scuttlebutt is that it just didn't just didn't work.
1: I think my reaction to the songs, I mean, look, the first Little Mermaid from 1989 is 83 minutes long. It's one hour and 23 minutes, and this film is two hours and 15 minutes long. And one of the ways that they pad the length, I mean, Mark kind of referred to some of the, there are kind of nods to a little bit more thematic sweep, but. They don't really do that much with where some of that length is coming in is in these additional songs and there's wild uncharted waters. There's for the first time. Look, I've certainly been wrong before. Those songs did not register with me at all. But honestly, my bigger complaint about the songs is I just think the classics particularly under the sea but also kiss the girl mm. are so enervated there's really no energy at all to under the sea which is all kinetic it's all swaying in such a playful lighthearted way and here it actually slows down the momentum of the the story
2: under the sea.
0: be naturally, naturally. Even this and the ray, they get the urge start to play we got the spirit you got to hear it yeah. add
2: it's sea. adding to another like little thing where Disney is trying to seem very with it these days in the production notes they make a note that for under the sea they brought in Alvin Ailey dancers to like be the sort of choreography models for the animals. But that did not shine through to me in the animation. That is
3: a startling reveal. I (laughs) did not realize that. It's funny because you have, you know, the director, Rob Marshall, he did a Mary Poppins movie. He also helped kind of kickstart our kind of like re-interest in musicals with Chicago, which came like a year after Moulin Rouge. It is vivacious. It is like, it it has kick. It has like snap. (laughs) It is a fun movie. and. You would not believe that Rob Marshall's hand was involved at any stage of this.
1: Well, and I I think it's worth speaking to the size of the task at hand in a way. When you have Rob Marshall's stamp on this movie, but he's trying to steer a snowplow. It's kind of bound by the strictures of the original story, the original movie, just the sheer amount of money involved, this all-star cast. And so you just wind up in checking all those boxes. You lose that kind of fluidity of motion sometimes, I think, with these things. And Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that has come up again and again with these Disney remakes is they don't really have any kind of fresh authorial stamp because they're copies of copies.
2: Can I say one positive thing? <laughs> yes. I will say, Stephen, you alluded to this already, but I did enjoy Melissa McCarthy here. Mm-hmm. I think of all the villains we've seen in these live action remakes, to me, she definitely relishes it the most and I think was Both uh, paying homage to Pat Carroll, who is fantastic as the voice performer in that original film, but also has her own moments. Of all the songs that were old and were brought to life again here, that to me was the one that works the best. Across
4: the bridge, my sweet, you've got to pay the, and now I got a voice. the boss is
2: It had life to me. This and I also think the CGI of Ursula herself is actually pretty cool. Like I could actually see her. You could see her tentacles, her tentacles were menacing. So you know, I could find something positive to say about this film.
3: <laughs> McCarthy was good. But I went back to, to to see the old one though. I was just struck by how much Pat Curl just seemed to be just feeling herself. I'm relishing my evil, and then through the animation, relishing my body, probably the most, like, just overtly sexual of the villains in, like, Disney animation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of instructive because, like, what does sexuality indicate if not life? And there there's just so much life to that animation, so much life to that performance and that movie. Mm-hmm. And in comparison here, it's just, like, even though it's... Sensibly live action it just feels less alive than that movie you know and something has to change guys this can't be all we have to look forward to from disney
1: <laughs> all right well we have i think pretty clearly told you what we think about the little mermaid we want to know what you think find us on facebook at facebook.com pchh up next what is making us happy this week
0: Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
1: This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15
3: minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out, what's going on around the world and
1: at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Mark Rivers, what's making you happy this week, buddy? You're the Worst. Oh. oh, yeah. It's
3: this old FX... Uh, not too old, but it's an FX show from 2014. ran until 2019. I think it went to FXX. And it's kind of a rom-com kind of laced with arsenic. <laughs> you have these two, frankly reprehensible people at the center. You have this struggling alcoholic novelist played by Chris Gere. Uh, and then you have this very self-destructive PR executive played by Aya Cash. And what I love about this show is it not for a moment as you to love these two characters. <laughs> They're fully set with like kind of being themselves in that way. And it's really funny. And ultimately, it's a show about finding your person. If you're looking for an unconventional rom-com that will kind of stick to the tropes but also undercut them and really kind of, like, unpack them and interrogate them, I think You're the Worst would be a good choice if you
1: haven't seen it. Nice. Yeah, I think rom com laced with arsenic is a very good descriptor for that show. <laughs> so that's the FX show, You're the Worst, streaming now on Hulu. Thank you, Mark Rivers. Aisha Harris, what's making you happy this week?
2: Well, I'm a couple years, maybe three years late to this, but I have been uh, binging 60 songs that explain the 90s. The really mm-hmm. fun podcast hosted by Rob Harvilla. Each episode is a different song from the 90s, and he digs into their origins, a little bit of backstory about the artists, and I just really kind of enjoy it. The first episode uh, from a while back was uh, focused on Alanis Morissette, You Ought to Know. He's covering just, like, some songs that I, like, wasn't very familiar with or I knew but couldn't tell you who actually performed them, like Gin Blossoms, (laughs) uh, Ghetto Boys, Mind Playing Tricks on Me. Mm -hmm. And actually, the show recently returned uh, with a new episode, and it's uh, focused on Smells Like Teen Spirit. He also has an interview with Courtney Love in that episode. I haven't listened to it yet, but. Oh,
1: it's so interesting. She brings, like, alternate lyrics that she found in his notebooks, which is very disconcerting. Because you've heard that song thousands of times. And so so to suddenly hear different
2: lyrics to it is very weird. Yes, yes. Oh, it's kind of like watching The Little Mermaid, right? It's like, what's happening? (laughs) So that's 60 songs that explain the 90s. And you can find it on whatever podcast streaming site you use. Thank you, Aisha. Um,
1: What is making me happy this week? This was an easy one because we just announced the ninth annual winner of our Tiny Desk contest. We've had winners of this contest go on to be nominated for Best New Artist at the Grammys, like Tank and the Bangas. We've had winners of this contest that have won multiple Grammys in the case of Fantastic Negrito. And this year's winner is a wonderful band from Utah called Little Moon, which manages to blend this kind of late-aughts indie big-band qualities with some real, like, kind of Kate Bush, Joanna Newsome kind of eccentricity. Like, it's fragile but very forceful in really interesting ways. Let's actually hear a little bit of the song that won them the, the contest. It's called Wonder Eye. send them out on a little tour. So like watch for tour dates in your area. This Tiny Desk contest has really unearthed a ton of wonderful music. Uh, There's not just the winners, the kind of the bands that we discover along the way often wind up playing Tiny Desk concerts later. We've had entries go viral. It's such a wonderful kind of community that has been built out of these contests every year. Every year, five, six thousand artists enter so we get so much great music out of it but i'm really 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 happy about this year's winner again that's little moon the winner of the ninth annual tiny desk contest That is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash popculturenewsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Aisha Harris, Mark Rivers, thank you both for being here. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Stephen Thompson, and we will see you all next week.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology, hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident.